Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. Today, we're talking Elephant Six. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, let's talk about Elephant Six. Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother pod. Today it's a uh, trifecta with Wyndham, Christian, and myself, Jeremy Sartori, on the pod. And we're going to talk about uh, the mid-late <clears throat> mid, mid late 90s music collective Elephant Six that um, hailed from Denver, Ruston, Louisiana, and Athens, Georgia, and sort of included such notable acts as Neutral Milk Hotel, Olivia Tremor Control, Beulah, Minders... Um, of Montreal, among many, many more. I think at times had up to 20, Apples and Stereo had up to 24 different bands in and around this sort of collective of musicians. We don't normally tend to talk about, you know, a label and, and call it a scene, but in this case, it, it truly was. It was sort of a, a group of, of like-minded musicians, kind of started with Bill Doss, um, Will Hart and uh, Jeff Mag- Magum of Neutral Milk Hotel, who all went to high school together and kind of found a, a real sort of love in, in lo-fi, su- psychedelic, orchestrated pop and brought in just sort of insane but old school kind of instrumentation and orchestration to indie pop at a time when re- really nothing like it was happening. So, you know, a couple of things about this group is, is one, we're all huge fans of a lot of these bands, and, and particularly a few that we're going to discuss on the pod. Secondly was just the fact that this was kind of an isolated group of, of almost like a commune of musicians that didn't really hail from your, you know, sort of normal kind of scene uh, cities like New York or L.A. or Chicago. This was a group that, that came from rural Louisiana originally, um, and then on to the, the non-music capital of Denver, and, and then, like I said, and ended up in Athens, which had become a little bit of a hotspot for indie rock via REM. So I think, Christian, how are we going to break this out? How are we going to talk about Elephant Six today? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it is really interesting what you, you know, what you noted. When I started thinking about Elephant Six, I thought about how unusual it is that you would get a group of bands like this um, that sort of arrived on the scene simultaneously um, it didn't have any real connections to other bands that were already on the market in terms of personnel. Um, and, you know, that, that were all, or well, at least a number of them were actually sort of, were really pretty talented and, and sort of had this sort of affiliation with each other, sort of affiliation with this collective. Um, but, you know, but real, no, no precedent for that. And I think it is sort of interesting because, you know, this is obviously something that, that has since happened again. And I, I was thinking about sort of Saddle Creek and the way that that, you know, arrived out of a place like Omaha in, in a sort of similar fashion, I think. So it's a pretty cool, uh, it's a pretty cool scene. And, um, you know, I'm excited to dedicate one of our anatomy of a scene, um, you know, pods to it. But, uh, as, uh, as, as scientist in chief of brother, 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 um, which basically just means the most high maintenance of the three of us, um, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to explain our approach here. Um, and that's, uh, you know, there are a lot of Elephant Six bands and, you know, I, I don't think it's worth sort of going through every single one. Um, the, the, 
you know, the, the cream has sort of risen to the top, as, uh, as I think Wyndham said when we were discussing this earlier. But, um, you know, but I think we do want to touch on a, a couple of the real sort of uh, rock star artists here who, um, who you know, uh, upon whom this, this sort of scene was built and who are probably still best known today. So I think, you know, uh, Jeremy, I think you, maybe you should, you should kick it off and we can talk about Neutral Milk Hotel. Um, then I was going to talk about Olivia Tremor Control and Of Montreal. Uh, and then, you know, Wyndham can talk about two of his favorite bands, Apples and Stereo and Beulah. Sounds like a, a good way to do it. Um, one thing I just wanted to kind of touch on, if you guys don't mind, before we take a break, is just to kind of talk about, you know, where and, and sort of how we kind of came about these bands. We can do it when we kick into the bands, but um, definitely want to give a little context to the time period and sort of what was going on at the time as well. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, as you said, it, it, they really did arrive in, what, sort of 96, 97? I was seven, so I don't actually remember. <laughs> Where were you guys when these bands first came onto your radar? I was in New York, um, and I would catch them periodically on tour. Um, I think about the time I moved to Boston in the late 90s, um, I caught uh, the first spate of shows that featured these guys, and they did frequently tour together. So, you know, catching one of them meant catching most of them on a lot of nights. Um, but, you know, I remember seeing uh, Neutral Milk Hotel, Elf Power, and Olivia Tremor Control, Middle East. And then uh, I think Jar and I saw we did, Apples yeah. and Beulah together, and neither of us had ever heard of Beulah. And neither of us knew that they were part of the Elephant City. This is when we started piecing together that, hey, maybe this is um, a little bit more, has a little bit more connective tissue than we originally thought. But I remember both of us, you know, uh, unusually so, both falling in love with that band the first night we ever saw them. And one of those rare yeah, I think we, we both I walked out of the Middle CDs. East with CDs <laughs> from the yeah. show and had never heard them. Yeah, and then... But uh, it really was... Uh, so, so, I mean, I, I think... Sorry, go go ahead. Finish no, no, the... no, no, please go ahead. I was just going to say. I mean, I think one of the sort of unifying, like I, I can't obviously speak to the sort of nuts and bolts of, of how these guys came together, other than um, you know to to rehash, I guess what, what you said, Jeremy, um, which is that you know it sort of came. I guess they, it was Jeff Mangum was was in Denver. Is that right? So um, you went to college out there, and then is that right? Well, you know, yeah, I can give a quick history just before we get into the actual band. So I mean. Really, all of these guys were faculty brats in, in Ruston, Louisiana. At, um, Louisiana Tech. Louisiana Tech, exactly. So grew up together, literally went to high school together, started getting into music okay. at the same time. And the, the sort of four culprits, I guess, or the four sort of starting guys were, were uh, Magum. I've always called him Magnum, and you guys have now completely screwed up my pronunciation by correcting me and giving yes, me the correct yes, pronunciation. Yes, we've noticed that. It's Mangum. Mangum. All right, I'll, I'm going to do better. And uh, I do like Magnum better, but... Um, and so, uh, and Rob Schneider, who formed Apples and Stereo. Um, he's the one who went to Exactly. He's the one who Bill went to UC Doss. Bowler, right? Yep. And then um, Will Hart. And so Schneider went off to Denver, opened up a studio, I think got married, and these guys sort of ventured out there and started to make music. Da- Okay, Dawson Hart went to Law Tech and then moved out there, and then I guess Mangum did the same thing. Exactly. And so these guys, I mean, one of the other interesting pieces is they never were always in the same place. So you had a, a I mean, and Beulah was from San Francisco, right? So you had a, a bunch of different bands that were, were really kind of bonded over 
just sort of a love of music and, and really genuine friendships, which was kind of cool. They played on a lot of each other's albums. But Schneider opened a studio called Pet Sound Studios that eventually moved to Athens, and that was where a lot of the early recordings were done, and, and he was sort of the helm, the, the boards, if you will, um, for the early Elephant Six recordings. And Jerry, I think, you know, obviously the name Pet Sound Studio is, is um, you know, a clear reference to, to the Beach Boys album, and, you know, I, which is obviously a, a masterpiece, but, you know, it was... It, Stylistically, I think the the thing that I've always seen that sort of pulls these bands together is is a real affinity for um, sort of nineteen sixties pop music, and it, and a lot of it, frankly, you know, there there are songs that just, particularly by you know bands like Olivia Tremor Control, um, that just I mean they sound like Beatles songs or they sound yes. like that yeah. you know uh, Beatles like zombies yeah yeah they love this well, stuff, and, and I mean I think one one thing I wanted to ask you guys was you know mid-90s, was anybody else doing that, or was that really sort of unusual, and was that sort of one of the things that set them apart? I think it's funny, we just just had this conversation with Guided by Voices where we were talking about how out of nowhere this love of, uh, you know, what is the bedrock of rock, of, you know, pop music, the British invasion, you know, sort of, it had been absent for a while, and so hearing Guided by Voices and then later hearing Elephant Six, it was all brought back, and it's all music that we all love, Kinks, Who... Beatles, um, but people had shied away from that and gone in very different directions. This sort of codified um, a scene, and if, you know, in this case, Elephant Six. I mean, not a geographical scene, very much of a of a you know like-minded musical taste uh, scene. You know, built the scene built on um, you know sort of a, a like-minded uh, love of a certain kind of music um, rather than uh, geographical proximity and. You know, it shows. There was a, you know, there, I mean, Apples and Stereo are named for the Beatles record company. Right. I mean, that's, you know, it doesn't get more sort of... Uh, <laughs> Don't get me started on the names and all these things. <laughs> like, I, it's truly, like, Apples and Stereo, Beulah, Black Swan, Network Chocolate, USA, Dressy Bessie. Like, I, they have some of the worst names. Like for as a, a group, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing that like ninety well, percent of a group of it was almost a little hippie. I mean, bad. these guys live communally <laughs> oh, a lot of hippie. times, and uh, so it's funny you you mentioned the Pet Sounds piece, and when you it was kind of a natural for you to go back to that. But for people my age when this came out, so for me this was sort of college years, um, you know, early twenties. It was actually like what introduced, so we, we had an episode not too long ago about country and I sort of talked about how like hearing bands like Uncle Tupelo and Sunvolt actually, I, I started to delve into classic country because of those bands and I would say the exact same for Elephant Six. In fact, I didn't know it was a, a collective, a recording collective at the time and this is, is kind of another side note, but you know, I'd start to see these bands. I saw Olivia Tremor Control open up for um, Stereo Lab. They literally came through the crowd as a marching band, and it was amazing. I was just like, <laughs> what is this? Like, and they were so good and so big, and I'd gone there for Stereo Lab. I didn't really know Olivia Tremor Control at the time. Um, and I actually read an article once, and this was back when uh, Michael Stipe still had street cred, believe it or not, Christian. And they were asking him what the hottest thing was, and he mentioned, you know, this Elephant Six that you go and you and any night in Athens at the time, they had sort of, that was sort of the epicenter at the time for these guys. Um, you go to these clubs and, and they're all playing each other's bands. You never know what's going to happen. It's this sort of like really interesting psychedelic folk. And that when I was like, oh, I just saw the, you know, he mentioned Olivia Trevor Control, New York Milk Hotel, you know, who we'll talk about more. But 
I was like, oh, that's what it is. It's this Elephant Six collective, which then I not only sought out other Elephant Six bands like the Minders or Music Tapes, but I also started to, to have, you know, I had older friends who like win kind of new albums like Pet Sounds. To be honest, I'd never listened to Pet Sounds until I heard Olivia Tremor Control. And then I wanted to dig down deep and, and find out what was influencing these guys. And I think at Indie Rock in the time, which would, some of the bands that we sort of name check as influences or, or things that are, are very standard in our kind of, you know, music conversations these days, just were not then. It was very much like, you know, sort of the, the ripped down punk rock stuff was maybe as far back as you went. And people weren't delving into this different sort of psychedelia that was out there. And, and, and uh, Elephant Six really opened that door, I think, to a lot of what we like today. I remember you handing, I remember you giving me the tape of uh, Neutral Milk Hotel. I think we were in New Orleans um, way back. And How appropriate. Exa- <laughs> yeah, it was very strange. Trip to New Orleans. Ill, yeah, it was, the whole thing was a, a dumpster fire. But um, <laughs> we, uh, it was really funny because it, it, Jeremy said this to me at the time and he said it countless other times. It's just like, he goes, I love this album. I keep thinking I'm going to play it for people and they're going to hate it and everybody seems to love it. It's the weirdest thing. And so like, like you couldn't get your head around the fact that other people would love uh, in the airplane. Neutral Milk the Hotel city. in yeah. particular. Yeah. yeah well, just... and the fact that it's, you know, it's like Stephen Colbert's favorite album of all time. Um, oh, that's right. You know, it's like that, I mean, that, that it does. It has this incredible, incredibly dedicated following among a much larger group of people than I think you might realize. So well, anybody out there who hasn't listened to this, like, yeah, anybody out there who hasn't listened to this stuff, I you know we were I mean we'll drop a few songs obviously in this episode, but um, but you know definitely give it a spin because it, it does bring back I mean it really does harken a sort of very traditional like you know psychedelia and and sixties um, pop sound that's that's pretty cool. Great. Well, should we take a break and then uh, jump yeah. into some of the bands that we love from yeah, this period? Let's do All it. Right. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are talking Elephant Six, a uh, collective, a um, sort of a nebulous group, but a, uh, a with a very solid core. 
Um, it is, uh, I, I think we just, we were just discussing Neutral Milk Hotel, but I think we can do a deeper dive on that album because I think it's an album that, you know, sort of stands out um, as, as the sort of pinnacle of creative output for this uh, group, but also probably the album that at least Jared and I, and I think Christian too, uh, probably hold in, in the highest regard among um, any of any of the uh, output that this that this uh, collective uh, had. It's a it's a gem of an album, Jared. Yeah, I mean, so you know, funny. I think we were talking sort of prior that this album has sort of transcended. Certainly, I think probably all the groups in in this collective. In in addition to that, just has really kind of move people from all, all walks of life and uh and, and surprisingly so because it's it's a weird album and it doesn't really sound like anything you know before it or, or after it um you know when the interlude between the first song and the second song includes a salvation army uh band yeah, that um, would be <laughs> that would be part of it and uh then you know blasting into the you know just ripping uh lines of i love you jesus christ over and over again um, but yeah, I mean, I came about this album. I was living in Austin, Texas. It was 1998. I was working in a cafe with a, a bunch of other guys who, who like to talk about music. And, and, you know, there was a record store down the street aptly named 33 and a third. And, uh, this guy mentioned to me, like, have you heard Neutral Milk Hotel? And I think like Christian, the name sort of threw me off. I was like, no, <laughs> you know, um, do I need to for some reason? And, uh, he's like, it's, you know, I think he said what I said to Wyndham. He's like, it's a really weird album, but I, it's really good. You should check it out. And so on my way home that night, I picked it up and I, uh, you know, was living with three other dudes at the time and threw this thing on sort of in, in the privacy of my room. And it was like, had been dropped from outer space to me, even though it, you know, it really draws on sort of traditional folk and, and, and rustic and, elements. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to your point, when sort of marching bands, I mean, you've got a, a music saw, a uh, French horn, I mean, you know, accordion organ, but, um, uh, you know, a guitar, a guitar amp with a hole plugged in. The, uh, <laughs> woofer. Exactly. And, you know, the band is Jeff Mangum, who, um, you know, I butchered his name earlier because I called him something else for years, who had, who'd, you know, put out an album earlier that was had gotten critically acclaimed in, in I think it was 95 or 96 on Avery oh, Island. Yeah. And um, and I had not heard of that album. And I, and I think back then it was a little harder to find these things. In the Airplane Over the Sea came out in 98. It was recorded primarily in um, Denver with Rob Schneider at Pet Sounds. A lot of people think that it was, you know, influenced by uh, Mangum having read Anne Frank's book and, and, you know, certainly songs like he's admitted songs like Holland 1945 are definitely influenced by that, but he's never really said what the influence of the album is. And it is just, I mean, can we say this is a masterpiece, you know, of a five plus star album? Um, I, I think it's one of the greats, and I, I don't think there's a weak moment on it. I agree, you know, and, and lyrically, it's it's raw. I mean, it kicks off with King of Cow- Carrot Flowers Part 2, or, I'm sorry, Part 1, <laughs> then into Part 2 and 3, um, which is like a, you know, family dysfunction, like beautiful sort of like acoustic song. It rips on songs like uh, Holland 1945. It gets, you know, um, sort of dark and, and sinister at times with Two-Headed Boy. It's It's just... It is an album like no other, and an album that, you know, there was times where there was bands that I loved that I just knew people weren't going to dig. There's things that I always wanted to share with people and, and wish they liked, and then there was this album that I, you know, I'd kind of timidly started handing out and, and burning for people, and, you know, to this day, 
I don't think there's anyone who hears this album who isn't blown away by it. it, it and moved. Yeah, it yeah. really, it was nothing, you know, it was funny, prior to this pod, I looked up a little bit of some of the reviews, and actually got fairly mixed reviews at the time. I remember there was a, a magazine I read pretty frequently called Magnet back in the day. That was sort of the college rock alternative magazine, and, and they had voted it best album of the year. But, you know, Rolling Stone gave it a lukewarm review, as did Spin at the time, just sort of saying it was a little too earnest and his vocals were too strained and you know things things just that make no sense and have now gone back and given it the, the five stars it deserves but I, I think you know at the time too this was so word of mouth which which really made this album cool and unique at the same time I, I like I said mentioned I lived in a house with other friends a lot of our friends were musicians at the time and I, I you know vividly remember it sounds corny but sitting on our porch and a couple of my friends that were in bands you know, playing, uh, he had printed out the lyrics to King of Carrot Flower, and we were all drinking beers, singing, you know, on our front porch in Austin, Texas. And it was, it was just an album that united people. We were just like, wow, this is amazing. Um, what do you guys takes on it? I mean, I, I think sound-wise and, and kind of what it did for you. I'm going to weigh in just in the sense that, um, you know, I have a particular uh, penchant and, and can be particularly punitive about lyrics. Um, and I will say that the, you know, the, the, most the best thing you can possibly do as far as I'm concerned as a lyricist is push something as far as you can toward the absurd without going over the cliff of being um, cheesy or nonsensical and this album is I think as good as any I've ever heard when it comes to sort of uh, you know the lyrics are, are poetry it's imagistic it's it's evocative but it never you know, makes you. There's not a cringeworthy moment on the entire thing. It the whole thing just um, works beautifully. I think part of it is conviction, but part of it is is um, you know the the ability of this guy to write. I mean, he's a fantastic writer. So you know that was one of my first takeaways. My other was that you know just the weird instrumentation is is uh, you know it's just such a unique sound. Although. The pop hooks are all there, so I don't know. I'll kick it over to Christian. What do you? Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're right. Like, like all of these guys shared um, a, a sort of a, a penchant for you know really lo-fi recording. So much like his voice, which I think you wouldn't necessarily say is traditionally great, um, it is extraordinarily honest and earnest. And I think in in you know, it, it, it works. It works for what it's for what it's doing. Um, and you know, it's it's also it's just incredibly striking. Um, I mean, he is loud uh, at certain times, and you know, relative to the other instruments, which is sort of an uh, you know, uh, and and I think that that you know that sort of brings the the words and the emphasis you know forward in, in a lot of those lyrics. Um, and you know, I think the what, what's interesting is I, I would almost. Like, look, I'm not, I'm, and uh, I'll go on the record saying I'm not a huge Dylan fan, but like, it has, you know, it ha- when, when Dylan's at his best, it has that sort of like, um, you know, there's sort of an emotional connection, right? Like, you can see, you know, you understand what this, you experience what this guy is experiencing um, through, the, through the music. And I think that that's something that, that Mangum definitely achieves here as well. There's yeah, also, I mean, you, sorry, go ahead, when. No, I was just I was just going to double down on the Dylan thing and just say you you hate the person that he's aiming his his bile at. Yeah, and I, I think there was some mystery around this band too at the time. Like it was, you know, obviously a, a really strange album that you know, like I said, it, it kind of literally did drop just 
out of space. It was even the other bands that we'll talk about, Apples and Stereo and Olivia Trauma Control. You can you can trace their music really back to to the influence a lot easier than you can with with Nutramilk Hotel. Um, but they did two albums, and they did you know this sort of masterpiece album, and then really you know I'm toured off of it and things like that. And unfortunately, this was the one band out of the collective I, I did not get to see in their prime, but I did go back. Um, and get to see them at the Orpheum in Boston, I think last year. And, and, you know, another time where just sort of, it was, you can just tell like the crowd was like emotionally invested in just seeing them. It was great. But, but they also sort of, you know, kind of just stopped, you know, it was like, they put out this, this piece of music, didn't explain it, didn't really talk about it. And I've, I've heard Mangum kind of talk about that, about Elephant Six too. Like part of the, the joy of Elephant Six was this sort of like, you know, collective of, of like-minded musicians, but they didn't want to be labeled. They didn't want, you or know, and, and when they started to get pressured is when a lot of these bands kind of moved on and, and broke up. Um, yeah, I mean, Mangum in particular, um, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, the, the, you know, did the true version of Gone Walkabout. I mean, he, you know, it was like, well, when's the, when's the follow-up record coming out? It's like, well, Jeff moved to Eastern Europe to record field recordings <laughs> in, in uh, former Yugoslavia. And we're like, is that a fucking joke? And it wasn't. No, not at all. <laughs> Funny side note, uh, the reason Arcade Fire you know, got signed to uh, Merge was because of this album, too. It's an album that we said touched a lot of people, but they wanted to be on Merge specifically because this album was released on Merge, and they wanted to be on the label that, that did uh, In the Airplane Over the Sea. It's, it's actually funny that you, that you mentioned them because I was, I was thinking in advance of, of this sort of where can we most, like, most see this the the impact that this that this album had on on subsequent artists and I I, I came up with two um, one great and one terrible and uh, the the great one was was you know early arcade fires just is so you know owes a lot to to this album and then the terrible shit is the Decembers right so precious yeah yeah and that 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 vocally is almost an imitation um, but it's so um, strategic as opposed to the the you know what you feel as a as a raw emotion Ar- with manga. Yeah, arcade fire, arcade fire just yeah captures the oeuvre of it, and and yes, what you feel is like a a, a sort of um, something that that he has to to purge or sort of exercise. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's a really incredible, uh, incredible and work even, of art. And yeah, and actually, I mean, just riffing off what you just said, I mean, it's also the album artwork itself is incredible, and was such a distinct departure from. You know, all the it was bit. like old postcards, right? It was a, yeah. I don't even know where it came from. It's a you know. It's an old um, postcard that they like threw a drum or something over the head of the the girl. Yeah, I mean, it has this kind of like antique feel to it that just completely was not which, what was going on. Which actually, to continue this thought, and I, this is all becoming very stream of consciousness. But actually, you know, I was thinking about uh, another another sort of inheritor of this mantle is, is Beirut. Um, mm, who, very much. You know, Zach, yeah, Zach Condon, who obviously, you know, who his inspiration was also actual Eastern European music after a, an extended sort of tour um, at the end of high school, uh, or while he was still in high school, I guess, because his brother moved out there for a year abroad in college. Um, I, I think that, you know, those those influences for Condon were actually, like, you know, um, sort of solidified in something that, that sounded very much like um, Neutral Milk Hotel. And, and um, but, you know, a lot of the imagery uh, in the lyrics, but then also actually a lot of the images um, on, you know, on album art and stuff like that um, sort of remind me a lot of Neutral Milk Hotel. It is that sort of an- antique uh, uh, art, so. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about some of the other 
um, bands in the, the in the Elephant Six universe. So uh, we're back at the Brother Brother Pod, and we're talking Elephant Six, and uh, we're going to talk about Olivia Tremor Control and of Montreal next. Two uh, two other sort of uh, pillars in this group of, of great collective of bands. So Christian, uh, I think you're taking this one. Let's talk about OTC and of Montreal. Yeah, so we'll, I guess I'll sort of do this chronologically and and start with uh, Olivia Tremor Control. Um, you know, I, of Montreal obviously sort of uh, gained momentum and and continues on. You know, and and is quite successful to this day. But but really sort of hit its stride, I think, in the mid two thousands or late two thousands. OTC um, was. You know, a relatively abbreviated existence, or at least I should say, you know, it was. Uh, they were around from ninety two to. to 2000, and then I think they they have since got back together in 2009, but not um, not producing uh, much new music, and they weren't particularly well. I shouldn't say they weren't prolific. I should say there weren't a lot of albums to speak of um, that that came out of that 92 to 2000 period. Um, you know, it was formed uh, formed by Will Cullen, um, Bill Doss, Jeff Mangum, um, Will Cullen Hart, excuse me, and and uh, Bill Doss and Jeff Mangum um, back in in you know, basically 1994 under the name Synthetic Flying Machine. Um, but uh, but oh, yeah. subsequently... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> uh, but, you know, I, I think that ultimately their, you know, their greatest achievements here were, you know, were centered around um, the, the two studio albums. And the two studio albums were both actually ultimately based on um, a... a Film script that that they'd written, um, and it was sort of the the soundtrack or the music from an unrealized film script. So it was Dusk at Cubist, Cubist Castle, 
um, and then uh, subsequently Black Foliage Animation Music Volume 1. Um, great album names, really easy to remember. Uh, they just roll off the tongue. Um, wait, till you know, you get, so wait till you get to the Of Montreal song titles. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, they're album titles. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a, there's a sort of literal quality for sure. Um, you know, I, I think these guys were very much pop-focused and, um, you know, very, very sort of, and, you know, with, with sort of hints of experimental psychedelia in there. Um, most of their songs, actually a little bit like uh, GBV, um, Guided by Voices, are sort of are on the shorter end. Um, and, you know, I, I think they vary from, you know, sort of lately, uh, lately um, uh, distorted guitar, you know, electric guitar to a lot of acoustic guitar pieces and, and definitely come across as, as hugely Beatles-esque, I think, particularly on Cubist Castle. Um, so, you know, I, I think you guys have seen them, obviously. I, I never had the uh, never had the pleasure, but I think, you know, the, the melodies are definitely... Um, reflect uh, reflect guys who have a pretty sophisticated musical palette um, who obviously are experienced with you know things like um, well music theory and jazz but I mean they are sort of replicating um, you know replicating the Beatles uh, it, 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 I think pretty pretty effectively and and you know a lot of that has to do with their harmonies and, and chord progressions but um, but it's definitely a great sound I, I, you, guys I um, you know I like Olivia Termo control I like um, darkness at Cuba's castle a lot um, I kind of feel like they were a band that I was rooting to go one way and they went the other with uh, black foliage I, I, I my problem with Olivia Termo control was that they when they hit a great groove they often interrupted themselves with some sort of um, you cuckoo know, clock <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, I mean all sorts uh-huh. of sort of arbitrary uh, misdirects as if you know because they had you know written a perfect pop song um, they needed to fuck it up somehow and it, that became frustrating for me and, and it they doubled down on that particular uh, habit on uh, black foliage I thought uh, Cubist Castle is a much more fluid um, and good pop record and you know there's some like absolute gems on there I mean it's downright like XTC kind of you know great moments um, but I did you know I, my problem again was was with you know the their desire to kind of insert um, foreign noises into perfect you know what we're what we're skating by is like awesome two-minute pop songs I don't know Jared what was your I I like these guys a lot I mean I definitely kind of they were it's funny they were sort of the hot band at the time kind of getting the underground buzz and then I think both Apples and Neutral Milk Hotel ended up sort of gaining more uh outside yeah traction but I, I saw them live a couple of times, and, and they really could recreate those sounds live. And, and, you know, if we haven't mentioned already, one of the other neat things about this collective was a lot of these guys interchanged. So, I mean, band members in OTC were also backing band members in Neutral Milk Hotel. Okay, and wait, isn't that likewise, the tuba player from yeah, Neutral Milk Hotel? Pretty much, I think the tuba player was in every band in the Elephant Six. Tuba accordion the, and banjo uh, player? The um, long, you know, beard there. But... Um, yeah. And I, I think Dusk at Cubist Castle is kind of the masterpiece, right? So if you're going to do an uh, Olivia Tremor Control album, that is the album. And one of the things that I really found just amazing about these guys, you know, you think about a band like the Beatles, okay, or Beach Boys even, who just had oodles and oodles of money and producers to go into the studio and, and create those sounds and bring in symphony orchestras. 
these guys were total DIYing it, you know, I mean, this was, this was, you know, guys in, in Georgia and in, in Louisiana, you know, putting together, grabbing horn players and, and, you know, music saws and, and, you know, alarm clocks and whatever bells, you know, sleigh bells and, and everything else and, and creating these just hugely orchestrated pop songs. Um, but, you know, completely on the DIY budget and on their own. And, and, you know, I don't know what music backgrounds they had, but I, I always have been uber impressed with anyone that can do that. And they could really recreate it live. Um, like I said, I think in the first segment, you know, when I first saw them, it was as an opening act. I didn't even know who they were. And they literally came through the crowd as a, as a full, like, Salvation Army marching band and got up and just started ripping song after song. And, uh, I mean, I could have gone home happy right after their set. It was, you know, I certainly went out and bought, bought this album immediately afterwards. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think they got a little bit past. Uh, Bill Dose, I don't know when he passed away. And I, I'm not sure, was it an overdose or was it a... Um, no, he, he killed him. He killed, killed himself. himself. Yeah, and, the, you know, rest in peace, obviously. That's super sad. So as they're reuniting, that, that came about. And, and, you know, again, I think just like we mentioned with Jeff Mangum, it was a scenario where these guys stopped playing when, you know, they, I think, felt too many expectations. They started doing other projects and other things. And I think when you're right, they went into more experimentation. But, um, but you know, I think they stopped and then reunited and people were like, oh, you're going to make music? And, and they sort of were like, eh, maybe, maybe not, you know. But take it back to Christian for Of Montreal. Yeah, let's go. That's a band I know less yeah. about, actually. Of, of Montreal is, is kind of a fascinating group because I, I really do think that there are two sort of distinct eras and, and in a way, two distinct bands. I mean, the, 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 the whole thing is always centered around Kevin Barnes. Um, and he's been the you know the lyricist and the guitarist and the singer for um, you know since since 1997. Um, it's worth noting, just to start with, that they have 18 studio albums and that excludes EPs. Um, so you know there is a hell of a lot of material to work with. So what's your back, very, Robert Pollard? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, he's a very prolific songwriter, obviously. Um, but I think uh, let, me, let me actually let me actually start in the middle and sort of uh, and then reflect backwards because I think you know I, I really first came upon this band in in 2004 um, and actually it was a year later I think it was that year or the the year after that we um, that we then saw them at uh, Pitchfork Festival. Let me ask you just um, quickly: Was this when you were working at the Outback Steakhouse and they were singing the Outback Steakhouse jingle? Uh, no, no, it was not. Um, and fuck you, Wyndham, um, <laughs> for for uh, for running that up the flagpole. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, no, but they. Uh, it was basically with a with a 
you know, couple of albums, um, Ald Hills Arboretum and uh, Satanic Panic in the Attic. Um, and, and really, I think it was with their sort of more permanent shift to polyvinyl records, so leaving behind, uh, you know, Kindercore that, that, um, uh, that really sort of helped solidify this shift toward much more electronic music. And actually, I remember sort of arriving, you know, late, I guess late high school and then arriving in college and, and sort of, you know, I'd, I'd loved... Um, Satanic Panic in the Attic, and um, in particular, 2005's album, The Sunlandic Twins, um, which was basically about his experience living in Norway. Um, and uh, uh, this this turned out to be a really sort of pivotal life experience for Kevin Barnes because, you know, su- subsequent to that, um, he, you know, separated from his wife um, and just had a, had a daughter, I believe. Um, and that sort of led him to a much more introspective place. And so it was this combination of the electronic sounds that he'd been experimenting with on the Sunlandic Twins um, combined with suffering on a personal level um, led him to, to produce, I think, you know, really one of their, certainly one of their most commercially successful albums, but I also think, you know, it stands up and really is one of their best, best, which yeah. is Hissing, Hissing Fauna, Are You the Destroyer? And, you know, I should note that on the Sunlandic Twins, my absolute all-time favorite song by these guys, which is called Oslo in the Summertime, um, and you can really hear him sort of experimenting with synths um, you know, I, I get the feeling that he's listening to a hell of a lot of dance music from Scandinavia at this point in time, um, probably to kill the bleak, dark winters. Um, but, you know, when, when he does make that move to Hissing Fauna, you know, you really do start to start to see him come into, I think, sort of his full, um, you know, his full abilities as a, as a songwriter. And, you know, since then, you saw, um, you know, Skeletal Lamping, which came out in 2008, um, and I believe that's actually our producer's favorite record by them, and this is a band he loves. Um, but what, what I do want to touch on is the fact that I remember being in college and then, you know, going out and, and digging through the racks at a record store, coming on to some of their earlier albums, playing them and thinking, who the hell is this? This sounds nothing like these guys. I, you know, this is not the Of Montreal I know. I mean, it was very much acoustic, folk-driven um, sort of pop songs. And, you know, I, 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 it kind of confused me. I mean, in particular, like the bedside drama Petite Tragedy. And that's not to say that, um, although they do have an album, which is one of my favorite titles ever from that era, which is The Gay Parade. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think they, for the most part, you know, it was, it, it was sort of before this evolution, like it really was a different sound. I don't know if that was your experience. But if, I don't know if you guys were aware of them when they were well, sort of on the acoustic side. I can, I can tell you a, a kind of a funny aside, which is that, um, you know, as three brothers, you know, who are consider themselves, you know, uh, ex, you know, frontiersmen in the music world, you know, searchers and, and discoverers of new music, uh, my knowledge of, of Montreal came through our our sister. We do actually have. Um, I think mine did too. Two yeah. relatives uh, <laughs> in common, um, but uh, our sister Sarah uh, was there. <laughs> provided a crash pad for these guys, and and just to set the table. To, uh, and uh, I don't think Sarah will take any offenses, but she's not uh, a gigantic music fan, and and she doesn't you know sort of take the same level of pride as we do in, in discovering new stuff. Um, she's a sort of laissez-faire music listener, and um, she, you know, I came down one time. She handed me. But her, her her home is not a regular crash pad no, for, no, no, for no, musicians. No, I think it's important to say. No, this yeah. is a, uh, um, a very quiet, 
uh, bucolic home in in uh, rural in Virginia. But, that time, it was, yeah, exactly. But these, uh, you know, uh, they happen to be Kevin Husbands happens to be the nephew of a good friend of hers, and so you know she came to visit, and um, she had this stack of like twelve albums from the Elephant Six group, uh, you know, uh, music tapes, uh, Great Lakes, um, uh, and then a ton of of Montreal. And she's like, I don't know if you'd like these guys, but they seem like they're up your alley, um, but they crash on our couch every once in a while. So that's how I came to know of Montreal originally, which is kind of funny. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great story. And, and you know, I, I think um, at that point, I mean, it also goes to show you that, you know, I think their, their tours have changed a little bit since. Um, but, uh, but to, you know, actually to speak of their, their touring and their live performing, um, that's also one of the most exciting parts about of Montreal, I think. Uh, they put on just the most incredible, like, freak pageants, basically. <laughs> um, you know, the costumes that they bring on stage are just awesome. Um, you know, I think when we saw them at, at uh, the Pitchfork Festival, they had, you know, these sort of massive, like, four-and-a-half-foot angel wings on their guitarist. Um, I think and, somebody uh, was dressed up as a lobster. There was definitely some garter belts. I think, and, I think uh, that was Kevin Barnes <laughs> who was dressed as a lobster. in there somewhere, too. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, we, we often talk about the fact that we love bands who, uh, who show up in uniform. Put their back I into think, their theatricality, yeah. Yeah, but I think, you know, sort of understanding that their music is, like, is fun and um, sometimes, you know, um, sort of, it has a sort of celebratory quality, like, just go for the it. The parliament you know? funkadelic of the Elephant Six. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything, Jeremy, you want to... You know, I, I, I hate to admit it, um, but I am just not as familiar with these guys. Like, I think I, 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 the one album I know is Hissing Fauna, and they were always a name that was kind of in the bins and, and circulated around Elephant Six Group, but I, I just never dived in. So I'm sort of a one-album wonder with, with of Montreal. I, I did do thoroughly enjoy them live and would go see them again. But I uh, look forward to some recommendations from you guys on, on their best stuff. Okay. Yeah, I can recommend 17 other albums to you. <laughs> yeah. so this is going to be a fun day of, of uh, um, playlist making between the Elephant Six and Guided by Voices. So yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. let's take a quick break and we'll come back and talk about the, uh, the sort of architect of Elephant Six, Robert Schneider. Church is filled with losers, psycho or confused. 
Welcome back to Brother, 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 where now we are going to be talking about uh, Rob Schneider, one of those sort of visionaries um, within uh, within Elephant Six. I prefer to refer to him as Robert Schneider, lest he not to be, confuse him lest with he yeah. be confused with the <laughs> funny com- comic uh, Rob Schneider. Um, but um, yeah, I think uh, it's funny. Apples and stereo. Um, are the sort of uh, spinal column of, of Elephant Six. I mean, Robert Schneider produced all these bands um, or in some way, you know, often co-produced or, or, and played in and, and guested and did all sorts of things. I mean, this was sort of his, you know, partially his vision for a lot of his hippie friends who, um, you know, sort of, you know, played their parts beautifully. But he, you know, I think he seemed to be a bit of the parental supervision or the adult supervision for Elephant Six, and his band, Apples and Stereo, um, you know, they were a really straightforward, um, you know, pop, 60s pop-influenced band. I mean, they were a good rock band. And uh, Tone Soul Evolution, I still think, is a a wildly underrated and under-listened-to record. I I recommend it to anybody who loves a great start-to-finish set of hooks. I mean, I think... One of the things that was, you know, always interesting about Apples is, you know, their 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 songs were so poppy and so energetic, um, and I think Schneider himself recognized his own limitations. He's not a great singer, you know, in the same way that you know Superchunks, uh, you know, Mac from Superchunks, not a great singer, um, and so you know, there's a lot of melodies, a lot of uh, backing vocal help um, in the, you know, the in the vein of the Beatles and the Zombies and the Beach Boys. But, um, you know, really it was an outlet for him and his uh, wife for a considerable amount of time uh, and a few other friends to make really solid, you know, Beatles, Badfinger-influenced pop songs. And and to be honest with you, uh, you know, Apple's had a a couple of um, uh, commercial breakthroughs. I mean, if you consider uh, they did the theme song for the Powerpuff Girls, and also, uh, you know, we're on a lot of TV commercials for a while. Uh, songs like Energy and um, a few others, uh, you know, were plugged into commercials in the late 90s, early 2000s. So they did, you know, they of all these bands... I did not know that about the Powerpuff Girls, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, I was there. Yeah, they were, you know, so, you know, all the bands involved here, I mean, you know, they were the ones that had the sort of business sense and, you know, more commercial drive. Um, but at the same time, they were a delight to see live... And, you know, as Jeremy and I were recollecting uh, one night a long time ago, and and this, you know, uh, I think we were sort of reminiscing about this and sort of trying to uh, draw a point that, you know, these bands were not terribly popular in their uh, actual uh, running time. So Jeremy and I go see Apples and, uh, I don't know, it must have been 97, 96, 97 at uh, the Middle East in Cambridge, and another band called Beulah was opening, and we just, again, fell in love immediately. There was a point at which, you know, one of their songs hits an apex. The lead guitarist puts his guitar down, picks up a trumpet, and starts playing a beautiful trumpet lead uh, that goes along with the rest of the, the tune. And it was just one of those bands that was kind of irresistible. I, I, to this day, um, I'm as mystified as the members of Beulah are that they weren't a lot bigger uh, than they wound up being. But I would strongly recommend... When Your Heartstrings Break, which is my favorite, I think Jer's favorite, and then Christian really liked the follow-up to that, I think, a lot um, as well, and, and that the name of that album is going to escape me. Coast um, is what, Clear, is it? 
Oh, the, the Coast is Never Clear. That's Coast right. is Never Which is a great name for an album and a horrible, uh, cynical take on, on uh, outlook on the world. Um, but I kind of get the feeling that that, you know, and then I, I remember seeing them open for Wilco and, and, you know, continually seeing them open for bands, not getting a great response from the audience, which was mystifying to me, and then ultimately going to see them uh, one night, and I can't remember if you were with me or not, I don't believe you were, um, but I just turned to my friend Trip when we were watching the band, I was like, this is a band that's breaking up, and uh, they were broken up shortly thereafter, you could just feel it. They had sort of given up. They thought after they were their gonna... fourth album, Yoko. Yeah, it was uh, it was tough to watch. But um, again, um, you know, I can't recommend them highly enough. I can't believe, I, th- I you know, I almost feel like they're the early two thousands big star, where you know everybody who heard them couldn't believe they were bigger than they were, and and yet they weren't. So, um, you know, yeah. a, a band with tough luck. I was just going to say, too, out of the, the kind of all the bands we talked about prior of Montreal, you know, Olivia Turner Control, to me, Apples and Beulah were, were by far the most accessible bands. I mean, they were, they were very much just straightforward, you know, sort of pop rock bands. And, and you know, it, great, good for Apples for Stereo. I mean, Energy was a, a legitimate hit later on. So they had sort of taken mm-hmm. some time off and came back in the, the mid-2000s and, um, and had a hit. I agree, Tone Soul Evolution is, is a masterpiece and, and highly recommended. But, you know, I think Beulah is a band all three of us sort of shed a tear for because, um, you know, both, you know, The Coast is Never Clear. I, I love that album a lot too, Christian. I think it's great. And When Your Heartstrings Break, you know, are just really two perfect pop records. I, I didn't even know, you know, again, it was kind of funny at the time that this was, these guys were part of Elephant Six. I just thought it was like a band opening up for another band and they seemed to be friendly. But, as you kind of, you know, learn more about all these different bands, you sort of realize this is sort of uh, interconnectedness, you know, whether it was a sound or members or, or uh, you know, producer. And, uh, you know, th- I think it's really a, a cool grouping. Um, and these were two, two of the best. I think it's worth noting that they were also just victims of circumstance in the sense that they were originally planning on putting this out on, on Capricorn Records, but that obviously folded at a really inopportune time right before the release of The Coast is Never Clear. Um, and they were folded into Island Def Jam, which bought Capricorn, who had very little interest in promoting them. Yeah. Well, and it was that time period where you still had bands trying to get on major labels or getting signed to major labels, and then major labels kind of having no, no audience or no interest in really pushing it. I will say that Beulah did have a song, and I can't remember which one it is. It might be A Good Man is Easy to Kill. Um, but one of the songs did hit a target ad eventually, and I, I sort of did a little cheer for that. I don't remember if, which. I think it might have been post breakup, though. That's the. It problem. was post breakup, but you still get a check for that. So I'm glad. Yeah, they no, got no, paid. I mean, you know, good for you. But yeah, it's, it's a bummer that uh, none of the none of the stars could have aligned for them a little bit better. Um, again, great band. Uh, sorry that the uh, circumstances didn't work out so well for them, but we're gonna we're gonna lard up our. Uh, playlist with a bunch of Beulah and, and celebrate their greatness. So anyway, you want to take a quick break and we'll come back with uh, and end the, the uh, pod the way we end every pod? Sounds good. All right.
podcast uh we talked to elephant six today and now we're going to end the podcast the way we end every podcast and that is what are you listening to so christian what are you listening to well it's uh this today it's actually going to be uh, what am i reading which is and the answer is the road by cormac mccarthy um this is fucking brutal to get through um and uh you know i, I don't mean that as a as a value judgment necessarily on his um on is his the, writing I i'm mean, sorry I, is I the think blood dripping from my wrist making too much noise on the podcast <laughs> yeah exactly um no, i mean it is it is just so incredibly bleak um i needed to you know sort of understand what the fuss is about i've obviously seen a bunch of his movies um but you know you can't throw around the uh the mantle greatest living american author um, and not uh, not inspire some interest. However, I wish I did not have that interest. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to, yeah, I've, I've got, <laughs> this is You're, this on, is a, a you're on a dark, review. lonely road. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'm mean, to I, the weekend because I'm yeah. heading down to visit. It's such a dedicated, uh, it's, it's, it's obviously dedicated to a son that he had in old age. Um, and, you know, since he's going to die, he wants to send him the message that, like, he would crawl through glass for him. But couldn't he, like, write him a letter? <laughs> Doesn't sell as well. Uh, yeah, I'm with you on that one. So I, I, I know dissent here. I really, I uh, strangely read that book at a, a really, really fun wedding in Bermuda, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law's wedding in Bermuda, and I was the only one, like, peering over a book on the beach going, you know, like, casting every, giving everyone side glances and being like, fuck you. you know? <laughs> it's like, that is the shittiest combination. Like, that is the worst beach read ever. I'm trying to think of, like, what the, like, like the soundtrack equivalent is, like, is, like, putting, you know, like, the, like, Shawshank Redemption soundtrack on it, like, Soul Cycle or something. <laughs> it's, like, that kind of, like, insanity. The like, why the fuck would you do that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry that's happening to you right now. Cheer up by the weekend, because I am coming down. We're going to go see Andy Weatherall. So, um, Jerry, what are you listening to? Um, watching, actually. I didn't uh, have the wherewithal to read it, but uh, I did jump into, I think I mentioned a few pods ago that I'd started The Hand, Handmaid's Tale, so I'm going to start yeah. stick with depressing and, and uh, dystopian. But um, I actually really liked it. It's, it's, a, it's a good show. I finished it up, and... Uh, um, you know, it's always tough for me when I, I, it's the tough thing about American shows in general, 
they never want to end after one season. I'm just waiting for that perfect show that just ends well. And this show ended really well, but there will be a second season, so more to come. But I thought it was really well done, and I uh, highly recommend it. Enjoyed it a lot. Well, that's good because we, uh, you know, we've we've capped a uh, pod that's almost entirely about sunny pop inflected music <laughs> with some of the most depressing shit. And now we are literally going to post-apocalyptic oh, hell. And I'm yeah. going, I'm going, I'm going for the three for. I saw <laughs> I saw Detroit this week. And um, it was a movie I was really, really excited to see when I read about it a year ago and found out Catherine Bigelow was doing it. And, you know, I didn't, part of it was that we were in England, but I didn't, you know, I didn't really see much buzz around its opening. And and certainly I haven't, you know, nobody I know has seen it. And um, so I was kind of curious, but I went and saw it. And um, it's a really riveting mess of a movie. Um, it's really kind of feels like we're living it. I think that's when. Yeah, that, that's part. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah. Actually, um, you know, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. You know, large scale questions about race are are too far in our rear view to uh, you know to be going and seeing um, forty year old uh, or you know fifty year old uh, versions of of the questioning. But um, but at the same time, that could actually give it a big boost. Um, you know, and in this case, I don't think it did. Though. Think yeah. No, no, I, I agree with you. Actually, I think that's a little odd. I I, I also, but I don't I, I don't remember seeing it advertised anywhere. I mean, there's there some write ups while you guys were in England. Um, you know, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, the usual suspects. But it hasn't gotten a, a lot of. Buzz. I have a sneaking suspicion most of those probably questioned who made it and why it was made um, as much as you know the content. But anyway, the movie itself is. Um, you know, I wouldn't rush out to the theater to see it. It is like all of her movies. There's always something interesting in it. And there's really a centerpiece to this movie that feels like an entire movie in and of itself that is bookended with two kind of extraneous pieces. Um, there's a scene that goes on forever in, a, in the Algiers Motel, which is kind of a famous case um, of uh, police brutality that arose from uh, the Detroit riots. And that particular centerpiece felt like it could have been its own movie. Uh, it's about 90 minutes long. And then they bookend it with, you know, A, the beginning of the riot, and, and then C, uh, um, you know, the court case about the Algiers Hotel, which is really truncated and either shouldn't have been there at all or should have been another movie. It's a, it's a strange piece, but, at, you know, that said, it's also... Those 90 minutes in the middle are horrifying, uh, terrible, um, you know, just you know, just sickening, but also extremely riveting. So, you know, take that for what it is—a really mixed review. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. Looking forward to actually seeing it, but I may wait for the uh, the on-demand version. So uh, we'll skip forward to the uh, 300 million top 10 song or 10 best songs of all time. Jared, what are you gonna throw on? Uh, I'm going to go with, uh, we haven't put anything by the king on here, so I'm, I'm going to go Suspicious Minds by Mr. Uh, Elvis. Oh, is, this, uh, is this the 40th anniversary of his death this week? I think it is. is. It? Oh, okay, I it perfect is. timing. I did not know that, but I'm happy to uh, add him to the playlist. Oh, good. It's actually my Chris- favorite song by him as well. So. Absolutely, uh, that and Burning Love and In the Ghetto. Uh, Christian? I think I'm going to go with Body Snatchers by Radiohead. Wow. Nice. That's a good twofer right there. I'm going to go, I'm going to go, we're not going to fall in line on this one. I'm going to, 
I'm going to go Elephant Six on this one and, and put uh, Holland 1945 by Neutral Milk Hotel, um, which may very well be on every mix I've ever made since it came out. Yeah, it makes me happy every time. All right. So uh, All right. thanks a lot, you guys. Let's talk soon. Catch you next week. All right, bye-bye. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.